definitions are important. How you define something is significant. The parameters you put around your definition of something are significant. For example, and I've mentioned this before, but I think it's, it fits here really well. I could tell you, and this is true, I graduated in the top 10% of my high school class. As you remember, I graduated in the top 10% of the lower one-third of my class. How we define something matters, right? Parameters are important. I could also say, since we're on the theme of high school, I was the tallest guy in my high school Spanish class, which is really something at 5'11 to be the tallest guy in my high school Spanish class. But I was the only guy in my high school Spanish class, truth be told. Which may have had something as a high school student about why I wanted to take Spanish, I don't know. (laughs) We have a desire to appear better than we are, don't we? And we'll find creative ways to redefine our terms or to redraw the boundaries around our language or our stories or our resume so that we appear better than we are. I mean, why is it that when we begin to maybe experience conviction for sin, one of the first responses that we have is, well, maybe, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. We all know what it's like to try to justify ourselves and try to justify our actions so that we might see ourselves maybe as sufficient or maybe so that we will see ourselves as independent, especially before God. And here in our text this morning, we see a lawyer doing this very thing. This man is challenging Jesus, but his ultimate goal is to prove how good he is. And he's going to do that by redefining terms, by drawing new boundaries around terminology so that he might be justified in himself rather than seeking the justification that only comes from God through Christ Jesus. Follow along with me. Look at the way this begins. Verse 25, the word of the Lord says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. Let's first notice that the question that this lawyer asks Jesus is a common question, was a common question for many in Jesus' day and even in the generations leading up to Jesus' life on earth. In fact, the Pharisees and the scribes and the religious leaders almost made it a sport. I mean, if they had a varsity sport for whittling down the law in that day, they would have all been lettermen because they all sought to whittle the law of God down to what they could find as the most basic components of God's law. 
And so, for example, in about 100 years before Jesus, you have a very famous rabbi, a very famous Pharisee who wrote and touted that he could boil the law of God down into four phrases or four statements. And, and then the generations after saw that as the challenge, the gauntlet that had been thrown down. Okay, how can we boil the law of God down even more so that we might meet the law of God and we might be able to exceed the law of God through our own righteousness? So by the time Jesus arrives on the scene, the religious leaders commonly taught that the law of God could be boiled down to these two statements. Statement one, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. And statement two, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, in case we think that the Pharisees just kind of made this up on their own, they did not. Both of those statements come directly from Scripture. The first statement about loving God, heart, soul, mind, strength, comes from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5. In fact, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, was a phrase, was something that was read or stated or declared by Jews every single day. So they would have been very familiar with the very next verse, which is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The second statement comes from Leviticus 19.18, about loving your neighbor as yourself. And in fact, both of these statements are used by Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 when he is asked, essentially, what is the law? What is the most important commandment? And Jesus said, the most important commandment is you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That on these hang all the law and all the prophets. Now, you might be thinking this morning as you kind of read through the text, wait a minute. This man comes in verse 25 and he asks, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And then the answer that he gives to Jesus is, love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor excellently or perfectly and Jesus said yeah go do that and you will live and there's a temptation for us to think well wait a minute is Jesus advocating a works-based salvation if I just love God and if I just love people can I be saved through what I do in fact maybe even as you read this over, you were thinking about passages like Galatians 3.10, which says, for all who rely on works of the law or rely on doing are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of them. Now, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. So how can we do anything to attain eternal life when the gospel message is we are not saved by what we do but we are saved by the completed work of Jesus again notice Jesus's response Jesus answered you Jesus answered him you have answered correctly do this and you will live Theologian J. Gary Miller paraphrases Jesus' reply like this, and this is good. 
good luck with that one. Do this. Love the Lord your God perfectly and love your neighbor perfectly. Do that and you will live. And just think of how expansive these two twin commands are. Love the Lord your God with everything you are and love your neighbor as yourself. Like, who qualifies for that? Oh, I do. I've done a great job. No one does. Which is the point, as we will find out. But the Pharisees of Jesus' day also knew that this is impossible. That no one can perfectly love God and perfectly love their neighbor, which means that no one can do enough to inherit eternal life on their own. So they found a very creative way to accomplish the commands of the law on their own. Their trick was to redefine the terms. To redraw the boundary lines. I mean, you can do a lot by redefining the terms. As we just discovered, you can convince yourself that you graduated in the top 10% of your class. You can convince yourself you are of MBA status height just by redefining your terms. But more importantly, we can convince ourselves that we are good enough to inherit eternal life on our own. I go to church regularly. I have a Bible. I even read it sometimes. I pray, usually before meals. I even volunteer. I serve the church. Certainly I am good enough especially compared to some of my coworkers or some of my classmates. You should see the creeps that I live my life around. Like, I think I'm good enough. How easy we can convince ourselves that we are good enough on our own by just redefining our terms. And this is exactly what the lawyer does. Look at verse 29. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Notice his motivation here that Luke gives for us. Aren't you glad that Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, can see past this man's words to see his motivation? He's desiring to justify himself, which tells us this is not a legitimate question. He's not like, really, please, tell me, who is my neighbor? He's probably sitting back with his arms crossed, a little smirk on his face. Okay, Tell me who my neighbor is because he wants to justify himself because he knows like we know that it's easy to love those who love us. It's easy to love those who are like us. And so he attempts to justify himself just as we sadly try to justify our sin or try to justify our unforgiveness or try, try to justify our lack of obedience to the Lord or try to justify our lack of evangelistic zeal or to try to justify our neglect of gathering for times of corporate worship. Friends, nothing good ever comes from a desire to justify ourselves before God. Nothing. And the question that he asks, who is my neighbor, is related to how the Pharisees and the scribes of this day defined neighbor. Theologian Tom Schreiner writes that the Jewish religious leaders redefined neighbor to exclude Samaritans. So Samaritans aren't your neighbor. You don't have to love them. 
Foreigners are not your neighbor. You don't have to love them. Apostates are not your neighbor. You don't have to love them. Unbelievers are not your neighbor. You don't have to love them. Resident aliens are not your neighbor. You don't have to love them. Those who ally themselves with Rome are not your neighbors. You do not have to love them. And the list went on and on and on. Essentially, anyone with whom they disagreed could be written out as they redefined the term neighbor such that they no longer had to love them. Ergo, they now fulfilled the law of God on their own and could be justified in themselves. They could lower the bar for what it meant to love your neighbor as yourself and then feel good about meeting the standard on their own. This lawyer is expecting to be justified because like us, he likely does a good job loving those who are easy to love. And what Jesus does next then is to launch into one of his most famous parables. A parable that is about more than just being a good neighbor. It's about inheriting eternal life. So, I don't know, probably most of you don't remember. I think Nick Runlet was the only one around the staff table that remembered. You remember McGee and me? The old cheesy, anyone, just raise your hand if you remember McGee and me. Okay, see, I'm not as weird as I thought. Some of us remember McGee and me. I remember McGee and me was like a Christian cartoon that then had like a Bible verse and kind of a moral message. It wasn't bad. It was a little cheesy, a lot cheesy if you watch those now probably. Like very early 90s, neon everything, right? But my favorite episode was when the main character was in a skateboard competition. And, uh, and the night before the competition, you know, there's the, the proverbial bully in the episode. And the night before the competition, he reads this. And he's like, okay, I need to be kind to the bully. Which is always good to love others. Kindness takes on different forms. But that's not precisely the context of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The context of the Good Samaritan is not set so that we might walk away and think, I need to be nice to everybody. The context of the Good Samaritan is, what can I do to inherit eternal life? And specifically, when Jesus answers, perfectly love God and perfectly love your neighbor, this man thinks, okay, that bar is too high. I can't do it. So let's lower the bar. Let's shrink the circle of things that I must do to inherit eternal life. It's in that context that Jesus now gives us the, ser- or the, uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Look at verse 30. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Let's pause here real quick. It was 17 miles, 17, from Jerusalem to Jericho, and it involved descending a little over 3,600 feet through really rocky, sort of treacherous, desert-like terrain. I mean, picture kind of what you think of when you think of kind of Afghanistan war images. And so robbers would regularly hide in that area, in the rocks, in the caves, and then would come out and ambush travelers as they went along the way. In fact, some in Jesus' audience may not have even had to work really hard to imagine what that would have been like because they may have even seen people who had been robbed or mugged along the way as they traveled. And so a man travels down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and along the way he is robbed, 
He's beaten and he's left within an inch of his life. His only hope is that someone would come along and show kindness and mercy to him. And someone did come along. And Jesus said, by chance, a priest was going down that road. And we, as Jesus' audience, along with his first audience, are meant to think, yes, right? A priest, one of the good guys, right? He's wearing like white, you know, he's got the white lightsaber because he's good. The priests are God's representatives here on earth of all the people who could come by. In the first century, a priest would have probably been your best bet. The priest would have compassion. And the priest would have connections to be able to get you help and medical treatment. Verse 31, by chance a priest was going down the road and when he saw him, when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. The priest looks, he sees this beaten man, and he crosses to the other side of the road. He avoids this man and continues on his journey. But all hope is not lost because there is someone else who is now coming on the road. Just over the horizon, a Levite comes. The Levites were the curators of the temple. They were sort of like deacons in the temple. They were the ones who took care of all the logistical details For the gatherings as the people would come together to worship Yahweh. Surely this man would help. Verse 32, so likewise a Levite when he came to the place and saw him passed by on the other side. The priest passes by, the Levite passes by. This man is likely thinking, okay, all hope is gone. There's no chance I'm going to get help now. And his sense of hopelessness was probably only deepened when he looked up and saw that the next man on the horizon was a Samaritan. And to include a Samaritan, (laughs) for Jesus to include a Samaritan in this parable would have been shocking to Jesus' audience. Unless Jesus is about to paint the Samaritan as the evil villain. Because the Samaritans were hated by the Jews. They were half-breed Jews, so to speak. So quick history lesson. When Assyria invaded the northern kingdom of Israel in 722 BC, one of the atrocities they performed was to intentionally send the Assyrians to go and settle and live and intermarry with the Israelites with the expressed intention of essentially distilling down and watering down the religious and ethnic distinction of God's people. And the people that came out of those unions as a result, who were half Jew and half Assyrians, were the Samaritans. So you could see why the Jews would then hate them, treated them badly, and why then it led the Samaritans eventually to hate the Jews. They fought over everything. They fought over where to worship. They fought over what books should be considered scripture. They fought over who should be considered the people of God. The Samaritans and the Jews had no interaction. So much so that when they would travel and Google would take them through a Samaritan village, a Jew would go around, right? Like when you're picking your your journey, right, you have three options. Like they would pick the long one so that they would not have to go through Samaritan towns and villages to have contact with those dirty, filthy Samaritans. 
And so it's shocking that Jesus uses a Samaritan here, but there's a reason that he does. Look at verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will pay, repay you when I come back. So the Samaritan sees this suffering man, but unlike the priest and unlike the Levite, he has compassion. He triages this man's wounds. He gives up his own donkey and walks instead. And he takes him to an inn and takes care of him overnight. And then the next day he provides advance payment to the innkeeper to care for this man and promises to pay more on his next visit if more is required. The Samaritan radically loves this suffering man, this stranger, by sacrificially caring for him. Now, parables by design are meant to have a primary meaning, a central meaning. It doesn't mean they can't have other meanings built in, but it just means there is a central meaning. And Jesus makes the meaning of this parable clear in verse 36. Jesus said, which of these three, now speaking to the lawyer, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responds, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. Let's summarize now. Let's just take a step back and summarize because I think it's important for us to see all of this together the context of this whole conversation with the lawyer is the question he asks Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responds that what he needs to do is to love God with everything and to love others with everything. The lawyer realizes that the trick to accomplish what Jesus has said on his own is to redefine the terms in such a way that he can now fulfill the law's demands independently. And so wanting to justify himself, he asks about the limitations for the word neighbor. Surely this means only loving people who love us or loving people who love what we love or loving people who are like us or loving people who are easy to love. But Jesus responds to this parable making the point that the question isn't who is my neighbor. The question is, am I being a neighbor? Specifically, am I being a neighbor without limits? And just notice in verse 30, or 29, he asks, who is my neighbor? But Jesus answers a different question by asking a question in verse 36. Jesus doesn't answer, who is my neighbor? Jesus said, who proved, in verse 36, who proved to be a neighbor? And to be a neighbor, who proved to be a neighbor, even to one who was hard to be a neighbor towards, one who was hard to love, one who 
naturally was an enemy. And I think about how that might connect to our own lives where we are called by God to be a good neighbor, to love our neighbor as ourselves, even to those who believe differently and think differently and act differently. In other words, we don't get to determine who our neighbor is. Our focus should rather simply be to be a good neighbor. In other words, Jesus takes the narrow definition of the scribes and the Pharisees and he just kind of blows the walls off. He shows us that following God's command to love our neighbor as ourselves means that we radically love others without limits. Now you know that love doesn't necessarily mean a continual endorsement of what someone does. It doesn't mean full acceptance of everything they represent. It doesn't mean ignoring concerns But love does mean being sacrificially committed to the eternal best interest of another. And this kind of love is radical because it demands that we sacrifice, that we put aside our comfort, that we're willing to give of ourselves for the eternal best interest of another. And this is what Jesus means when he talks about loving our neighbor as ourself. We're to be about our neighbor as much as we're about ourselves, which is hard to do. We could sit in here among people that we care about and love and think, you know, looking around, I, I think I can do that. What about the coworker who stabbed you in the back to get the promotion that you wanted? What about the classmate that lied about you? What about the boyfriend or girlfriend that hurts you? What about the child who turned their back on you or the parent who abandoned you? What, what then? What about the person down the street who thinks differently than you or the person down the row who voted for a different candidate than you did? point is, this is really hard. In fact, this is impossible for us to do, which is precisely the point. The whole point of all of this, of loving the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving our neighbor as ourselves, and Jesus saying, do this and you will live, is because we cannot do this on our own. The only way we can possibly do this is by loving God and loving our neighbor through the one who already did this well. In fact, already did this perfectly, Jesus Christ. Only Jesus perfectly loved the Father and perfectly loved others like this. You haven't and I haven't. Only Jesus has. And even though he was then sinless, he willingly chose to swap places with all who believe by dying as our substitute, by taking our penalty for sin on himself. And three days later, God rose him from the dead. He is now alive right now and seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And all who turn from unbelief to belief, all who trust in him are forever changed. We're forgiven from our sin. We're united 
to Christ Jesus. We're adopted into the family of God, the church, and we are given the precious Holy Spirit of God who comes and lives inside of us. And it is only through the Holy Spirit inside of us that we can truly love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. It's impossible on our own. And so, those who have been redeemed, those who have been transformed, the people of God in whom the Spirit of God now lives, are now called to these twin commands through the grace empowerment that the Holy Spirit provides. We are now called to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind and strength. The Holy Spirit helping us to do that. And we are now called to love our neighbor as ourselves in ways that are unnatural to us in the flesh. That are ways that are crazy to those outside of us who look on and wonder like, how in the world can they actually love in that way? There's no possible way. The only way is that we, as, that we love through the grace and the power that the Holy Spirit provides. Which means, as Christians, we live out radical, grace-empowered love, which is our call. It's the whole point of this parable. We, as the people of God, would live out through the Spirit of God radical, grace-empowered love for God, first and foremost, and then for our neighbor as ourself. So how do we do that? Let me give four words in application as we start to move to close this morning. Four words that hopefully help maybe stimulate some thinking of what this looks like. And my prayer is that this morning, even as I've been preaching, that the Lord would be maybe laying on your heart someone or a few people for whom he is calling you to extend this radical grace-empowered love towards People for whom it's not natural for you to love. It's not natural for you to care for. The only way that's going to happen is through the grace of Jesus Christ. The first word is convenience. Convenience. So instead of asking, how can I get out of serving? Or thinking, how can I get out of this? Or how can I avoid this situation? I think radical, grace-empowered love of neighbor looks potentially for the ways in which love is actually inconvenient. Like anyone can explain, right? The world, unbelievers can explain love for one another when it's convenient. And all of us can love well when it's convenient. But what happens when you, you reach the border of convenience and you now cross over into inconvenience? What then? And friends, as we love, even when it's inconvenient, we are shining ambassadors for the Spirit of God who lives within us, through whom all of that is possible, and only through whom is all of that possible. The second is time. 
time. There are three primary ways the Samaritan helped this mugged traveler. First, he gave of tangible service, right? Like he ministered to his wounds, pouring on oil, let him ride on his donkey. Secondly, he gave of his financial resources. He gave money to the innkeeper. And third, he gave of his time. And I would just guess, knowing our context fairly well, that of those three things, material resources, financial resources, and time, the one that we hold as as a CCF culture most dear to us is time. Generally, I think we find it easier to give money to a need, to give physical resources to a need. Sure, I'll give you a gift card. What about when it requires time? What about when time is what is required for us to love our neighbor as ourself? Are we willing to pull away from a hobby or from leisure or from our prearranged schedule or routine or agenda? Are we willing to lay down what we are currently doing and excited about that we might help someone else? The third area of loving our neighbor well is risk. Risk. The priest and the Levite both saw the need and both passed on the other side. And it could be that they thought to themselves, you know what, whoever mugged this guy is probably still here. And if I stop to help, now I am at risk of getting mugged. And maybe in their own minds, they had a way of rationalizing, well, you know what, I'm not sure if he'll even survive anyway, and if I get mugged, then I can't actually go and do my priestly duty, and, and you, you, God knows how many people I minister to and bless all the time through my priestly duty, and if I'm taken out and I'm unable to serve, then the ministry's going to suffer. You could see how he might rationalize it, and it's not hard for us to imagine because we are really good at rationalizing ourselves especially when there's risk. That risk might be physical. Some in the church, even today, reading reports this week about church leaders and church members who have chosen to stay in Ukraine, not because that's more noble, because it's not necessarily more noble to stay than to flee, but they feel especially the, the call of God to minister in Ukraine to those who can't flee. The risk could be physical. The risk could be emotional. Well, that person is draining. They just suck the life out of me. They're really hard to love. I give and I give and I give. Or it could be dangerous. What if I love them extravagantly through the grace empowerment of the Holy Spirit and then they turn their back on me? What if it all blows up in my face and I'm hurt? Are we willing to love through the Holy Spirit's empowerment even though it might involve risk? Finally, the word other, which is incredibly creative, but it's the best I could come up with. You see, we don't have a problem loving us. We don't have a problem loving those who love us or those who think like us or value what we value or vote like us. But how are we doing loving those who think differently than we do or vote differently than we do or act differently than we do? How are we doing there? 
and I'm not really on social media at all now anymore, but when I was, if that's any indication of the broader culture at large or even the evangelicals I follow, I would say the answer is we do a pretty poor job of loving well those who think differently or act differently or have different ideologies or vote differently than we do. How willing are we to be a neighbor to those other kinds of people? Maybe of a different race, a different background, different economic place. People who voted for a different candidate. People who see the goals for the future of their life or their family or this country or the church in ways different than we do. To love well, you see, means giving up of ourselves. It means giving up of our time and our energy to show mercy, often to people who are very different than we are. Why? Because the world can love people who love them. But we're called to be radically different. We're called to love in ways that we can only do through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Friends, with the Holy Spirit's help, this may be hard, but it is not impossible. The Holy Spirit has sent us out on a mission to reflect his glory. That's our privilege as a church, to reflect God's glory to the world. And it looks like loving God with all of ourselves and loving our neighbor with all of ourselves. It looks like being willing to be inconvenienced, being willing to give up our time, being willing to take risks, being willing to look for those, look for those that we would find least likely to serve naturally. And as we think in these ways and as we faithfully seek to love others through the empowering grace of the Holy Spirit, what we discover is that the boundaries begin to fall down. And instead of redefining the commands of Jesus to meet our limited ability, we begin to see that it's only through Jesus' empowering that we can fulfill what he calls us to do. We begin to see that there is, even in our serving, only the Holy Spirit that can be used as an explanation for what is happening. That's only God. We begin to see in one another's lives, it's only God that you were able to do that. It's only God that you were able to do that. It's only the Holy Spirit helping you. And God is praised. And God is glorified. And God is loved. And brothers and sisters, may that be true of us. Even this week, God would stir these truths from his word in our hearts in such a way that we would look for ways to love our neighbor well. Let's pray together.